Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Finest Hour, a 40k podcast with strategies and tactics you can use in about an hour. I am your host, Sean Morgan, sometimes known as Abuse Puppy, and I have with me on my left the good podcast host, Shaylin Allen. Greetings. And on my right, our new evil podcast host, Ben Jurek. Hello. So Ben, as the evil podcast host, you've been uh, you've been performing some evil this past weekend, huh? Yes, I think I was trying to get new players into this horribly addictive hobby. Yeah, I mean it's like in terms of the evil scale, that's that's pretty up there. You're draining their financial stability. You're wasting their time. Like I gotta say, that's pretty evil right there. But he does have a shard of good in him because he mentored them so they'd stay. Yeah, I actually thought that the way you kind of brought the folks in and the the process you used there was uh, a very interesting one, because it's a little different than some of the ways I've seen people get people into the hobby. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, it wasn't exactly my idea, but I did participate in doing it. Sure. There's a local there's a local store here by the name of Power Nine Games here in Las Vegas, Nevada, and they were hold, hosting a um, an escalation force event. So it wasn't an ITC event. It wasn't a competitive event. It had no the tournament was definitely not in the word of anywhere of this event. It was an escalation event. So we did a thousand points, twelve fifty points, and fifteen hundred points of just book missions. Mm-hmm. And the TO the way he put it together is there's a handful of experienced players and a bunch of new faces, people I'm not used to seeing around the stores or at any tournaments. Uh, and what they did is they actually paired a lot of the newer folks up with some of the more experienced folks. Um, and we were able to play through our games and have a really great time and played three awesome games of 40k. Okay. So they kind of caught to see, like, almost in, like, quick time speed, like, ramping their army up from 1,000 to 1,500, uh, as well as getting, like, a lesson from some pretty experienced people. Yeah, it was it was something that I really appreciated doing, and it's been an idea that's bounced around here a lot because um, we're trying to get our players to stay. Um, mm-hmm. I think most competitive communities have a have a stigma to them of having you know be- having players in it that are that are not fun to play or um, having being a high barrier of entry. Uh, and this was a hey, bring whatever models you want. We'll we'll show you we'll show you how to play. And we most of us brought relatively fluffy lists. We didn't bring bring tickle cumber lists or we didn't bring anything that was like mm-hmm. you know super competitive but like i still brought uh, uh i brought for example my list w- was uh a bunch of witches so i had two witch bombs and some witch cult flyers oh okay nothing nothing crazy but stuff i could like get a little bit of play and still still say still stay somewhat like on the board with and you know even be able to uh, play against some of the other more experienced players if I got paired with them um, and, you know, show them what's what. Uh, I ended up going I ended up going undefeated in the event, but that wasn't the point of the event. Right. That's your, your record was probably not what you were aiming for there. Yeah, that's actually, I think, uh, something that a lot of people tend to forget is that hobbies live and die by their introduction of new players. If you're not constantly bringing in new players then your game is going to dwindle and eventually disappear. Mm-hmm. Also, the culture your players have can exclu- can be very exclusive sometimes, which... Yes. Uh, and that's something 40k has certainly struggled with. And some areas are way better than others, so it's just a matter of seeing what you find. 
Yeah, uh, a lot of the guys in the, the Northwest here also have made a very explicit effort to try and create like a, an environment that welcomes new players and that helps get them into the game. And I think that explicit teaching can be a big part of that, because it's one thing to like bring new players in and like, hey, we love having you here, it's, it's great fun bringing you in, um, but if they don't really have a good path to getting better, then it can be very frustrating to them. I will admit, uh, getting mentored regularly was important to me coming in and growing up in the hobby. Mm -hmm. There's a few flavors of uh, players that um, we saw this weekend. There were some that were like your your garage hammer, kitchen table uh, type of folks. Oh, yeah. And then we had two of the players I played were uh, players that hadn't played um, very much in 8th edition at all. Mm -hmm. Either they have not touched the game of 8th edition, they have they had armies from prior editions, or this or that. Or they're folks that weren't really familiar with any of the rules of 8th edition, so um, they're trying to like adjust at this, adjust to the new rule set as fast as they can, uh, but they're, mm -hmm. they're still getting hung up on some things from prior editions and this and that. Um, like one guy's like, oh, you can, you can charge right out of Deep Strike? I'm like, well, yeah, that's kind of like what the point of doing that is um <laughs> but I, I ran into some some really uh just like weird questions and i had to like normally um i'd be like well what the hell why wouldn't you why would you think that that rule you're an idiot no like this is a new player you you approach it differently like you're like oh um well here let me explain to you like why this works mm -hmm. uh let me explain to you why we're doing it and why that's why what you said is not a thing or why you're mistaken mm -hmm. So we played two of those, and then one guy that had just, like, he's just new to 40K. But he was really good at understanding the rules and really good at understanding, like, phases and everything else because he comes from a other gaming background. Um, so so he was really enjoyable to play. Right. Uh, it's, it's interesting to see people with very different backgrounds, either people who played previous editions and so like they know 40k but they don't know these rules or people who play other games either war games or computer games and so they have sort of the strategic understanding but not the tactical level uh yeah. and it's those are people who need to learn the game in very different ways i think mm -hmm. yeah what what warms my heart particularly is i not too long ago was one of those people um it, yeah I, I didn't start playing 40k till the autumn of 2017 um so i i picked up the game it came from another gaming background uh video games and magic the gathering and such mm -hmm. uh and i stepped into it so uh, i really relate to those people easily yeah, and I think we all have stories about how we came into the game, and it's important to remember that everyone has to start somewhere, but, you know, we have players like you, Ben, and like uh, Richard Siegler and whatnot, who will step into the game and just find that it is exactly what they want and dive right into the deep end, um, mm -hmm. and, and that's great for the game. Um, those, getting those kinds of players can really invigorate a community. Yeah. So let's jump into the main subject of the episode here, which is also kind of related to teaching 40k. Uh, we're going to be talking about 40k jargon and why we use it and why it's important. Because there is a lot of jargon and terminology associated with this game. I mean, with any game and with any hobby, really, but mm -hmm. 40k certainly has quite a lot of it and has even spawned some terminology that has moved over into like more mainstream areas, interestingly. Yeah. Well, and uh, let's talk about why we use jargon. A huge part of jargon is to condense an idea, uh, several ideas that are grouped together into a word. Um, right. It's a shorthand, usually. 
So it demonstrates both an understanding of the concepts underneath it when you're using it, and it also can, like, just, as I said, it's it's a word, so it's a tool, and it lets you explain a lot of stuff shortly. Mm-hmm. It's Because that really is the primary point, is it's a time saver. You take a larger concept and condense it down to a single word that, presuming that both you and whoever you're conversing with uh, are familiar with it, sort of acts as a signal as like, okay, we both know what's going on here, so we don't need to rehash this part of the concept and the argument. Because, uh, like anything, you know, knowledge is sort of additive. You, you build layers and work your way up. Um, so if you can establish early on that, you know, okay, we both are already familiar with this layer, then you don't need to go back through that again. Mm-hmm. Particularly what makes something jargon is if it's difficult for anyone outside the context to understand. Yes, jargon is actually, like, borderline derogatory in the way it's used, because it's it, it almost, it like Ben said, it sort of implies that, like, you know, only the select few will understand it, and that it is completely impenetrable to everyone else. But, you know, it's it's something that people in every possible walk of life are using. You have jargon that you use at work, in-jokes that you use with friends, etc. Also, uh, th- there's the idea of when it is and isn't to use appropriate to use jargon, someone who's newer to the game doesn't have the jargon background yet. So right. there is the idea of uh, this is like learning languages. You use the jargon, eventually they'll figure out what the jargon means just by exposure. Or you can explain Possibly. a little bit of as you go. Yes. Uh, I think that's a key part of making good use of terminology and jargon like that is using it when it's appropriate and avoiding it when it's not. Because if you don't share the same knowledge base as the person you're talking to, uh, using these terms is not going to save you any time because they're just going to be confused. Mm-hmm. So obviously new players is going to be like, if you're talking to someone who is not particularly familiar with the game and with the sort of lexicon of the game, they're going to struggle to follow your conversation if you're throwing a lot of jargon in. Another type of player is someone whose English isn't their first language. Jargon can become extra confounding to certain situations there, depending on their English skill. Yeah. Um, I think for most North American players, that is not as much of an issue. Uh, But it certainly can be if if you're encountering that sort of situation or if you're playing outside of, you know, the central bounds of the United States. SoCal, BAO, and LVO, I've all played people from Europe. Really? Yeah. Interesting. At all three of those tournaments. So if the tournament's sufficiently big, it can happen to you. Certainly. Uh, LVO, I would, I'm not surprised at all. We get people from everywhere there. The other ones, uh, it's a little more unusual, but I believe it. A Swede, a German, and a Frenchman. What's the rest of that joke? A Swede, a German, and a Frenchman walk into a 40k tournament and... (laughs) (laughs) And hit up with the American woman. Ah, right. I think that's the punchline. Yes. Ben, what do you think would be, like, a signal for you that, like, you would go a little deeper on jargon? Uh, A situation where you'd be a lot more comfortable using it. Well, as far as being comfortable using it, I'm going to be comfortable using it at almost any tournament table, with with the exception of someone whose uh, English may not be their first language. Mm. 
or as this weekend, um, I wouldn't use much jargon in that unless I'm specifically explaining it to them. Like, here's what this is. Here's what this means. We call it this for this reason. Right. Kind of getting them introduced to some of the jargon so they can not just learn it through osmosis, but learn it through being taught the jargon specifically. Yeah. As far as any time else I, I would find it appropriate would be in this podcast, for example. Okay. Uh, like we're we're gonna explain it, and go through them all because people may not you know know it all. And there's some that I've seen you know I didn't know what that meant for a year and out, but I saw it in writing, and you know I just never chose to absorb that specific piece. Right. And the the times that I'm going to avoid it is anytime I explain it to anyone outside the hobby. Yeah, because nothing will drive away someone who doesn't have a connection to the hobby faster than dropping a bunch of terms they don't understand. My favorite is first turn punch strike to describe alpha strike. Yeah. Well, I think you actually touched on uh, another really salient point there in terms of at tournaments and sort of in podcasts because your presumed audience is different. And that's obviously very key, um, especially if you're playing towards the top tables in any kind of tournament or at a larger event, uh, then you kind of have to assume that the people that you're dealing with there are people who are fairly deeply into the hobby as a whole. Um, so it only makes sense that they're going to have a lot larger knowledge of the, the terminology around the hobby at that point. So since we've kind of talked over the, the basics of why we would use it, um, why don't we step in and start kind of working on some of the, the concepts you, you see around and the words and phrases that we use here? Because there's quite a lot of them. Uh, we have one little quick caveat here. This list isn't complete. <laughs> we could not make a complete list of 40k jargon. That's not even possible. Nor are we covering, like, list archetypes or unit types, because there's a lot of those and they don't last forever. Yeah. I'd like to apologize for bro to Brohammer for not using the Iron Hands Brohammer list um, as their <laughs> as a quick piece of jargon here. And I'd also like to apologize to the poor Smash Captain that we will not be going over. Yeah. There's a lot of broader game concepts that I think are super useful to talk about. Um, Shailene, what do you what do you think? Kind of your one of your top picks would be Alpha Beta Strike. Okay, well, that's the one I use all the time because that's yeah. what my army does. Well, why don't you tell something about it? Alpha Strike is a turn one heavy smack, either in shooting, assault, or psychic against your opponent that is designed to deliver a crippling blow. Uh, beta strike that happens turn two instead of turn one. I've seen it used that way. I, the slight differentiation that I have also heard would be an alpha strike is uh, sort of the the first wave intended to incapacitate the enemy before they have a chance to do anything. So under that idea, it could be on the second turn if that's the first damage you've done to them. Mm -hmm. um, whereas a beta strike is typically a response to something the opponent has done. Um, once they have brought their reserves in, you beta strike them and sort of catch them with their pants down. That is not how I've ever seen it used, so funny that. <laughs> well, it, it turns out there is no Oxford Dictionary of these sort of terminologies. As far as alpha strikes go, um, you, you're going to hear it used in both the turn the, and the concept of striking in the first turn or whichever. Mm -hmm. But 
you, you also hear the terminology used with um, list building. You're, if you, you, there are some lists you just look at and you're like, wow, if this list goes first, I'm going to get wrecked. It's an alpha strike list. Yes. By implication, an alpha strike sort of exhausts a lot of your resources, which is, the term is actually not native to 40k, it was imported from uh, a number of other places. Mm-hmm. But it sort of implies that you uh, you bet the farm on your initial hit doing enough damage to set the enemy back. Yes. Ben, what do you got? What's your what, what do you think is your first pick for a, a big term you think that you, you see a lot? A big term? Well, if we're going to go big, we're going to talk about the bomb. Ah. So, <laughs> so a bomb in 40k is anything... Um, that it has a large impact or punch to it, or well, an ex- well, in this case, you know, an explosion, mm-hmm. aka bomb. And these are these are all things that they they come into the game and they impact the game immediately. Mm-hmm. As far as either they coming out of reserves or they existing on the table, um, they don't have a specific role, uh, but they're 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 what I would like some like sometimes like to call the playmaker. Um, and it's usually a gr- large group of something, usually, and a lot of times it's max squad size. Mm-hmm. If I'm bringing, you know, a Zangor bomb, it's going to be as many Zangors as I can take. And they're either going to be dark, they're either going to be uh, dark matter crystal across the board or, um, or come in from reserves somewhere. Right. And that other, that there are other bombs that kind of exist on the board. Like I'm recently, I've been playing a mega nub list. I have two, I would some would call two mega knob bombs on the table, hmm. um, and they just exist in the middle of the board and control it. So a bomb doesn't exactly do a particular thing, but they're usually a large squad that does something big. Uh, not to be confused with Death Star, which is another dragon term. Yes, um, I think the the way I would differentiate the two of them, sort of the most basic level, is I've almost always heard bomb used to talk about units that arrive from reserves mm-hmm. or that use a reserve-like feature such as the Dark Matter Crystal you mentioned. Yeah. Um, whereas a Death Star is going to typically be sort of more of an on-table presence. And at least in the old version of Death Star, they were pretty much indestructible. A bomb can be any large or highly effective unit that sort of drops in and does its thing, mm-hmm. uh, whereas a Death Star is sort of by definition very hard-hitting and resilient and is intended to exert a strong table presence, often taking up most of the resources in a list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're usually requiring all the support, all the psychic support, all your stratagem support. Yep. A good example in this in this current meta and edition would be your your possessed lists. Those are definitely both a bomb and a Death Star. Um, you know, they don't come out of reserves, but they definitely have their own ways of uh, running up the board really quick. Yes. Uh, and just as a quick note, bombs usually, bomb is sort of a suffix mm-hmm. that you will have a possessed bomb or a Zangor bomb or whatnot. Whereas Death Star is essentially an independent term. You can just say a Death Star. Uh, whereas you won't often hear someone just refer to a bomb. All right, Sean. Yes. What's your term you want to talk about? I think I'm going to go with Math Hammer. Uh, We might have done an episode on this. We did, in fact. Uh, Math Hammer is pretty simply, I mean, really, it just means statistics or the process of running said statistics. Uh, I, I would argue it's applied statistics to 40K specifically. 
Yes, I mean, we're talking about Everless in the context of the game, so all of this applies to 40k. But yeah, Math Hammer is really just 40k applied statistics. There's a lot of different facets of it. We spent a whole episode talking about it. Um, it's often used in a kind of uh, derogatory form, um, as just saying, oh, that's just Math Hammer, which, you know, kind of has that implication of statistics are not an absolute, just because something has a 95% chance of happening doesn't mean it happens every time. Also, sort of the caveat that uh, statistics don't necessarily reflect the actual play that happens on the table. Because mm -hmm. strategy and tactics obviously have a huge influence on what exactly happens during a game. Yeah, and speaking of kind of strategy and tactics, the term uh, whack, win at all costs tactic. Ugh. These are people who are a little too into it at all times. It's also the thing that some people will call just anyone who beats them in a game. Yeah, or anyone who plays in a tournament. Yeah. Um, it usually refers to the kind of people who are toxically competitive. Yeah. I'm I don't find the term that bad at least in where where I come from. Um I understand it has its bad connotations, but with win at all costs, um I'm always going to run a win at all I'm always going to run a win at all cost list. I'm always going to run the best chapter tactics and not mix in the f the fluff and the fun stuff and everything else because and I'm still going to run my blue marines as as iron hands if I need to. Like I'm I'm going to run I'm going to run win at all costs lists. Right. And we don't want to be those those bad players, but like we're still going to use the best rules at the best times that we can because there's no reason to uh, handicap ourselves. I'm hip I'm I'm hypocritic here because I'm I ran index orcs at the beginning of eighth and refused to not run anything but index orcs. <laughs> so there there's there's a little bit of talking back and uh, back and forth there, but I still ran you know the best possible list I could and did everything I possibly could, including learning all the rules and such. And some people might even consider some forms of play win at all costs. Yeah. I mean, like, we can kind of, like, segue uh, where we're going with this, either into talking about that guy, which can commonly be referred to as whack. Um, and then there's there's one other thing that we might be able to uh, talk about with whack, too. So, Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about that guy first. Uh... First caveat, can be that girl, too. Yes, there just sadly are not a lot of women in our hobby, so yeah. the vast majority of the time it is that guy. Also, most of the women I've found have been pretty pleasant players. But win at all costs, I, I like to... I don't like the term very much. Uh, obviously, uh, Ben has had a somewhat less bad experience with it, and I think that sort of reflected a, a sea change in the hobby as a whole over the last few years. Mm -hmm. um, I generally like the term competitive rather than win at all costs to describe players who play well, because uh, win at all costs feels to me like it, you are sacrificing sportsmanship or even not cheating in the name of victory. Uh, and that's really what that guy, uh, always capital T, capital G, is about, is he's the player who makes playing the game a miserable experience, either because of his personality or because of the way he plays or some other facet of things. He's the guy that stares at my boobs all game and makes titty jokes right. for no reason other than he wants to. Yes. Uh, just 
someone who is monumentally unpleasant to be around and usually has a reputation as such. Um, if you if you go into a shop, then everyone else in the shop already knows who that guy is. Mm -hmm. There's often that guy in some extended meta near you, unfortunately. Every store has one, unfortunately. Um, every local meta has one. Every tournament will have them. Yeah. Some people handle them better than others. There's usually some sort of social class there. It's not always that person's fault. You can actually fix your that guys. You can make that guy aware that he is that guy because no one wants to be that guy. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the the sort of like trying to get people to better themselves is is what can differentiate a you know good players from bad in that respect and good gaming groups from bad. Yeah, no, I've seen people who say things that are super insensitive. I point out that it's insensitive and why it's insensitive, and four out of five guys go, oh crap, and then they stop doing it. Right. And that one guy, well, sometimes your only real option is to kind of, like, kick him out of the shop, because a lot of times those players decide not to improve. Eh, uh, well. Well, do we want to... End this with what I think is maybe Ben's favorite term on this whole list that kind of is related to this. Uh, to be tonied? <laughs> well, he there's there's that's the ultimate that guy situation, and that's actually what it uh tran it, it translates into itself. It's a jargon of a jargon. Mm -hmm. So to lay it out for people that are not aware, uh, there was a match between a particular person named Tony Grappando. Uh, at LVO, and who was he playing? Alex Harrison. Yeah, he's playing Alex Harrison. Um, and there was a situation where there was a order of operations was kind of, sort of skipped, but acknowledged in a, in a way. Um, but at the end of the day, he uh, Alex Harrison had put in his uh, his reserve unit, his unit uh, Deep Strike, down, and he was going to finish the rest of his movement. And Tony said no. As far as the way the rules are written um, and how what he's allowed to do, that's totally within Tony's you know purview to be able to do. Um, but it totally helped him set up those reserve units. Even it was it was kind of a crazy dramatic situation of like unsportsmanlike conduct, but definitely within the rules. Um, and this and so Tony became that guy uh, and chose to win at all costs um, and sacrifice his sportsmanship. Mm -hmm and go with that so that you'll, you'll hear the term getting tonied um around type of situations where someone discusses their intent or does something and then you know they they say they say no and uh there's also a lot of situations in 40k where the the game is not perfect um and someone someone goes for a take back scene like like i'm i'm pretty i'm pretty lenient like if you if you forgot the role your your litany at the beginning of the battle round and i've already started moving units I don't care. I'm not going to suddenly tell you no. Uh, doing otherwise would be would be, would be considered, um, you know, being that guide or Tony'd in some stakes. But Tony's specific that 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 specific uh, yeah. situation um, was around the like the deep strike rule being at end of movement uh, versus at any other time, and suddenly you know forcing that player to end their turn and no longer move anything. But that can be discussed for any sort of those uh, those discussion and like you know joint group gameplay situations. Especially any time where you are technically correct, but uh, the more sportsmanlike or or even just reasonably interpretive version of of things would not net you nearly as much of an advantage. 
The good news is this story led to the code of conduct for the ITC, which has helped a great deal in people just not doing this as much. It also led to Tony himself making a public apology for his behavior. And again, people can try and get better. Mm -hmm. Oh, I was talking, thought we were talking about the sweet justice when it happened to, when he got Tony'd back by Nick Nanavati. Well, (laughs) yes, the, the, the Tony getting Tony'd was truly a karmic moment. (laughs) Cause that is sort of how that thing plays out. If you're going to be the guy who's just, technically you cannot, and it's like, you, you'll get some people on that, but sooner or later you'll find someone who gets you a lot worse than you got anyone else. <gasps> on that particular uh, little high note, why don't we take ourselves a nice little musical interlude here, and when we return we'll talk about some more 40k terminology and phrases. Excellent, I found some orcish drums to add. Hmm... For those who are wondering about the In the Finest Hour Twitch stream, it should be up in about a month from this publication. And we are back with more 40k terminology. Uh, Shaylin, why don't you throw one at us? The Tau Tactic of Castling. Oh, it's not just a Tau Tactic. It is quite common in 8th edition. It is, but Tau are the ones most infamous for it. They're definitely kings of the castle, yes. (laughs) So castling is basically where you've got a couple buff units and you put everything around that buff unit. Mm-hmm. Um, or that it's usually a character, something that can't be targeted easily. Uh, things that also get targeted around are like casting characters, like the Thousand Suns that put out all the psychic damage and then they're castled around by plague bears and stuff. It's especially designed to take advantage of multiple overlapping auras in most cases, uh, which is why the Tower of the Kings of it, because every one of their units has an aura for supporting fire. Um, so they you tend to see the most of them, but also Space Marines and other armies that have a lot of auras will do the same. Mm-hmm. And you kind of build a, a figurative castle that is an, an unassailable defensive position, uh, which may or may not be mobile. Um, some castles have wheels. Some castles deep strike into the middle of the table. Yes, but you you build this position uh, by using all these overlapping rules such that your opponent can't reasonably approach it. Mm -hmm. Usually using some terrain involved with that too, um, such as putting some of your shooting units uh, on second level terrain and this and that and building or making it as difficult as possible for your opponent to assail you. In some cases, it literally is a castle, because your men are standing on a castle. (laughs) We may or may not have castle pieces for extra castle jokes. Yes. Let's see, what else do we we have in here? Oh, here's a good one uh, that I think has gotten a little more obscure over the years. Max. uh, M-E-Q. The Marine Equivalent. 
Shailen calls these chassis. Yes, that's, uh, I think, a little bit more uh, modern because you're seeing a little bit more variability in stat lines these days. Because you have, for example, Primaris Marines with two wounds as opposed to regular Marines with only one wound. Um, but sort of defensively, they tend to be basically the same. Um, so it's useful to have that broad profile because different games are sort of defined by different stat lines. In 40k the marine stat line is sort of the gold standard across the game, whereas in, say, Age of Sigmar or other games that even use very similar rules, they actually have a different sort of baseline definition. Yes. Um, I will point out in the target priority episode, we talk about this, uh, these levels of the different stat lines. Yes. And also the weapon stat lines that kind of deal with them and how those add up. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are similar terminology for some of the other stat lines we talked about there. For example, the GAC, or Guardsman Equivalent, or Tech Terminator Equivalent. Yes. And to make it clear what we're talking about here, when we say Marine Equivalent, we're, you know, especially where we're at right now, we're, we're talking about a 3-up armor save, nothing special there, mm-hmm. with, with Toughness 4, Guardsman Equivalent would be Toughness 3, with a 5-up uh, armor save, and the Determinator Equivalent would be a Toughness 4, with a 2-up uh, armor save, and most of this comes down to, you know, what are, how are you math hammering against it, or how, how many MEQs does this gun kill, or how many, how many uh, you know, TEQs does this, does, will this unit uh, be able to destroy in one turn, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because as we discussed in that episode, you want to be shooting the right guns at the right targets. Who knew? If you're putting your las guns into Terminators, you are maybe not doing so hot. And if you're putting your las cannons into Guardsmen, you're going to have a bad day. Yep. Unless it's that one Guardsman standing on the objective, in which case, screw that guy. Yep, sometimes you gotta. Well, speaking of stat lines, we our stat lines are sometimes discussed with just a either a two-up, a four up up and a five up 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 um and when we when we say that that means uh you know three different three different things all in one uh so the that it would be the two up being your armor save so a single plus signifying it yep two pluses signify an invulnerable save typically mm-hmm. and your five up 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 mm-hmm we don't have a word for that actually anymore that's in the rule book. Uh, that's usually usually described as a, you know, if you roll a dice, you ignore, you can ignore wounds uh, of this, or sometimes it has a special wording depending on what unit it comes from. Um, like on orcs, so you got docs tools or this or that. Um, but the colloquial term for that last stat line would be feel no pain. Yes, often mm-hmm. abbreviated to FNP, um, with the, the five triple plus kind of being an extension of because the the two plus your armor save that's just a thing in the game yeah the two plus plus the invulnerable save is sort of an extension of that is like what's better than an armor save an invulnerable save and then the two plus 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 being sort of a further extension on that as like well what's better than an invulnerable save the ability to just shrug off wounds of any type no matter what they come from. Yes. Uh, it is the only thing you can take against mortals. That's why it's fancy. Exactly. Uh, so you have these differing levels of uh, resilience uh, that we indicate with these increasingly absurd pluses. <laughs> Speaking of absurd pluses, my yeah. one of my favorite things in the universe is awkward juxtapositions, which, like, raw rules as written versus rye rules as intended. 
the oof, maybe the oldest argument in 40k or even in gaming. Uh, you see this constantly in Facebook and forum posts. Well, rules is written. It says that... Yeah, um, we're not going to dive real deep onto this one, just so that you know what the, the acronyms are, but generally the sort of, you get this, well, this is exactly what the rules say versus this is what the rules are intended to mean. Yes, uh, and the answer I usually go with is play more the more conservative version, and you're probably right. Yeah. At least not going to make your opponent grumpy. The game is not perfect. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> designer, uh, you'll often get the RAI at, at, out of a designer's commentary um, that comes afterward, usually after the nerf, after they fix a rules as written issue. You, you see them fix themselves, typically. Um, it, it can be relatively difficult, especially in tournament play, to ever argue anything rules as intended. So if you show up to a tournament, always expect, unless it's been you know told by a TO beforehand, that you're going to be playing things rules as written. And also, uh, I think, a with a grain of common sense, because there are many rules as written that result in not just, like, absurd results of, like, how could one space marine kill six orcs simultaneously? That's stupid. But more of, like, well, if you read the rule this way, it causes your entire, your opponent's entire army to explode simultaneously on turn one. That's probably not how the TO is going to rule it, even if that is strictly speaking, what the rule says. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about another common tournament issue then, counts as and proxies. Shailen, you want to you wanna try and define those two things for us? Sure. So a proxy is where you have uh, something that is often not related to the object in question, such as a crew standing in for a space marine, or vice yes. versa. Very, very specifically a model yes. uh, that you're using. Yeah, um, and proxies are never allowed at tournaments, basically ubiquitously. Mm -hmm. Counts as, for example, would be modeling everything that, count that means one thing the same, but just not using the correct model. Sure. For example, making a Grey Knight army using Chaos models. Um, you have a Counts as Grey Knight army, um, because obviously those Chaos are not Grey Knights, but if each model is converted in some way to have appropriate war gear and be representative of the Grey Knights, then that would be a Counts as army, as opposed to just, I found all my Chaos Space Marines and put them on the table and now I'm saying they're Grey Knights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some armies are easier to count as other than others, orcs being the king of looting and king of in taking anything and using it mm -hmm. um, are a wonderful army to do counts as as. Mm -hmm. uh, my shock attack gun is definitely a Tau Ion cannon being hoisted <laughs> by a knob on his two shoulders uh, with a bunch of orky gubbins all over it. That level of effort and conversion is a lot of what sort of differentiates the two of them. Yes. Ben, what do you got for us? What's your what's an what's the next term on the list you think is a big one? Well, my my favorite thing to do, being an assault army player for the most part, um, is a uh, wrapping tripoint or trap. Mm -hmm. So what that is discussing is taking a unit um, and in your through your charge movement and your fight phase movement, um, completely surrounding them, um, and then 
putting that unit to where that base cannot move away. Um, so if there's like a single guy out on an edge, you wrap three guys around him. Uh, that's why you get the word tri point, because you get that triangle point around him. And that base um, cannot leave your guys' bases without uh, without actually causing your model to move. Therefore, he's trapped. Um, he cannot leave. Uh, that is a super um, competitive uh, term and thing to do. That's not exactly discussed in the rule book. It's one of those things you kind of learn by going to tournaments um, and understanding mm-hmm. gameplay. But as soon as you get to any sort of competitive play, you're definitely going to see it happen, especially from assault armies. Um, and there's kind of an art, a lovely art and skill to doing it. Like pulling off a rat, pulling off a trap um, is, you know, it, it, t- it takes work. It takes skill to do. Um, and I really enjoy doing them. Uh, and there's as far as you know, discussing a little bit further what exactly that means, uh, there's usually something to the end of you know putting only one guy that that's able to fight into a unit and having him swing his you know worst profile so he doesn't actually kill anything. And then when you trap that unit, and the reason you do that um, is so you don't get shot. Yep. Mm-hmm. Can't can't shoot units that are in close combat. And then you kill that unit during their fight phase because um, you still get to activate. Mm-hmm. And you you still get to kill that unit. You still get that kill for the turn or whatever secondaries you'd score by killing them. Uh, and your unit then gets to take its um, its fight phase movement. It's consolidate after you kill them closer to their army after their shooting phase. So you're not you're still not getting shot. So that's the entire point of doing so. And that actually leads into uh, another term that I think we use a lot but we forget is not a real thing: activating. Um, that's not actually a term in the game. Um, but what that typically means is selecting a unit to fight or shoot during its appropriate phase. Uh, yes. Uh, actually, they do use it in certain rules where, like, it says after you've activated a unit to do something, you can do this in certain stratagems, I've noticed. I can't say I know that, but it's certainly possible it's in there somewhere. Yeah. Comp. That's a kind of an interesting one. One that's actually a little bit outdated at this point, but I think is still worth talking about. Um, not actually talking about uh, competitive. It is. It's not. It's short for composition rather than competitive. Um, it generally means uh, soft scores or uh, penalties applied during a tournament uh, in an attempt to kind of rein back the most powerful armies and create a less competitive environment. Um, So you may hear about comp penalties or this is a tournament with comp. If, for example, it is a tournament where, like, you're getting one-third points from generalship, but also one-third from sportsmanship and one-third from painting, uh, you would often hear that described as a comp tournament. Um, But I don't think you see that as often anymore uh those are typically split off into separate awards rather than being part of an overall award more yeah there's a handful of tournaments in our area that still do them the reason is the bigger the tournament the more logistically harder it is to do soft scores yes uh i'm actually a little curious ben have you run into the term comp much at all since you're sort of a a newer player to the game when I hear the word comp, I, I don't think about anything that you guys discuss, so that's definitely not something I ran into. The when I hear when I hear comp, I think of list composition. Yeah, I haven't heard that term used at anything that I've gone to or played in. So, 
it's more used outside of the United States. Um, I know Australia and Europe still have a lot of, uh, quote, comp tournaments um, that can happen there, although it is quickly fading as uh, sort of knowledge about the game spreads and, and different kinds of players are drawn into tournaments and things, the, the overall things shift. Uh, that's what I was, I was, I was curious if you'd ever run into that because it used to be a very common thing, but I don't think it really is anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing that's more common now would be our next thing and that would be netlisting. Ah, yes. The welcome to the internet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what netlisting is, uh, it's pretty, it's actually for the most part in the name, um, is you got your list from the internet. Uh, especially with there being so many sites that broadcast lists these days and record GT and major level events and top fours are, um, you people are going to research lists and pull them from the internet and try them out, um, whether it be to get their own success or just for fun or whichever. But uh, as far as uh, the net list and like the jargon and derogatory term, it's when someone shows up to a tournament and like you, it's like, oh, I that, that's an obvious net list. That's the list that won this GT two weeks two weeks right. ago. Um, literally model for model, war gear for war gear. And especially when the player clearly doesn't understand the list or has very little experience with it. Yes, uh, we did do an episode on net listing. Well, that's net lister. Right, but you know, a net lister is someone who net lists. <laughs> Conjugation. Nah. I mean, I've done plenty of net listing in my time. I steal lists. I try to understand them, so but I, I definitely don't go anywhere without the internet. Yes. Well, as Shaylin mentioned, we did a whole episode on net listing that I would definitely recommend people check out if they're kind of curious about the subject and the pluses and minuses to it. Uh it was it was a very interesting discussion. Yes. Oh, let, let's talk about Josh's favorite tactic for LVO. Submarine. <laughs> Submarining. <laughs> Uh, so submarining is basically where, because in a Swiss-style pairing, victories are what count, not battle points. So if you play low-point games, you can skirt yourself up to the top by just racking up victories. Yes. Uh, it can also refer to losing a round, uh, sometimes intentionally, sometimes, uh, quote, intentionally, and then uh, scoring very well in your later rounds as you are playing worse players, because obviously you have a loss, so you are not going to be playing sort of the as much of the top clique of players, um, and possibly sort of sneaking your way into, say, second or third place uh, on virtue of having lost one game and, not, and then got a bunch of easier matches. Yes. A somewhat similar and related term... Uh, Seal clubbing, as, as well as the related phrase baby seals. Uh, baby seals would be players who are newer, less experienced, less talented, uh, and seal clubbing would be taking advantage of these players during a game to score as many points as possible, getting that 40 or 42 point win on them. To put it simply, submarining kills baby seals. It's true. Please stop killing, please stop killing the baby seals. Yeah. They just, they do not appreciate those torpedoes at all. Oh, here's one I want to talk about. Yeah. WYSIWYG. Oh, yes. Uh, the acronym, uh, W-Y-I-S-Y-G? W-S-I-W-Y-I-G. I will always correct you. Do not worry. <laughs> yes, I, I appreciate that. There needs to be someone to, to keep me honest. Um, Seriously. Yes, but uh, it, it stands for what you see is what you get. 
that one's pretty self-explanatory. I don't think we need to say anything else. Well, I mean, so here's the thing. Um, it used to be an actual rule in previous editions um, that any war gear a model had needed to be represented on the model. Um, this is where we touch back to counts as, where we're talking about them having appropriate equipment. That was because of the WYSIWYG requirement. Um, strictly, that is no longer a thing in the rules, although most tournaments will so enforce some version of it. If your model has a melt-a-gun, their head damn well better be something that can at least pretend to be a melt-a-gun somewhere on that model's body. Yes. You, know, you normally just see it at the beginning of, like, of events or... Whether whether TO um, is going to have a, you know re very strict WYSIWYG requirements, um, for ex for example at LVO, uh, you're gonna you saw you know tons of intercessors. Mm -hmm. Did they all actually have stalker bolt rifles? Which the only difference between a stalker bolt rifle and any other bolt rifle is a straight magazine versus a curved or a box. No, definitely not. Not even in the top eight. But you're gonna run into some TOs that are gonna be like, oh, well, all your all your magazines need to be straight. Yes. There is a broad variety of enforcement, um, often corresponding roughly to the competitiveness and sort of size of tournament. Um, your local RTT is probably not going to enforce it very hard at all, even if, if they do anything. They may even allow proxies, depending on the particular tournament. Whereas if you if you come to LVO, uh, they were checking exact sizes of things like Thunderfire cannons, and if your Thunderfire cannon was two millimeters under, it was getting pulled off the table. Yeah. So let's move into another one that I really like, is the term chapter tactic, which is the technical mm. rule for Space Marines stating the the rule they get for what chapter they count as such as iron hands gray knights blah 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 mm -hmm. or for example for other armies it's your craft world trait it's your tau sept yes we all just call that chapter tactics there there are a million different names for them it's too much work and space marines are everyone so we just call them chapter tactics they were also traditionally the first ones to have them and had them in editions where no one else did so yes uh, chapter Tactics actually does come from earlier editions of the game. It goes all the way back to 4th edition. It only annoys me sometimes is the fact that we don't have it 100% universal yet as far as what Chapter Tactics affect what. So when you're Chaos, for example, your your stuff doesn't affect your vehicles, but everybody else does. I, I, I hate it. Yeah, it is unfortunately kind of arbitrary because G GW is not good at consistency. I like the Granite one. It affects psychers, and it's a psychic-based rule. Pretty mm -hmm. self-explanatory. Mm -hmm. So let's hit another one that uh, I think gets mentioned a lot, but might not be super explanatory. Mech. Uh, this is different from our other mech, M-E-Q. This one is M-E-C-H, like a vehicle. Mechanical. Mm -hmm. um, this generally refers to any kind of list that features large numbers of vehicles uh, and few or no infantry on foot. Uh, they are either embarked on the vehicles or just not there at all. You can do that, Nate. You absolutely can. Um, and you'll often see people talk about mech lists uh, or building to beat mech and things like this, because obviously you need a very different set of guns to kill these big tanks than you do those tiny baby little infantry. Yeah, your, your usual mech lists um, kind of revolve around having high, high toughness, high, high amount of wounds, and, you know, what exactly you're doing to beat them uh, is going to be 
you know, be like, oh, I'm I'm teching to beat a mech list, or yep. I'm building a mech list refers to uh, exactly what they're saying. Um, and there's kind of you can't really mistake around it there. Um, usually, it'll be in the name of a list. So if you have if you have a named list out there, it's going to be yep. you know, oh you know you know tau mech etc. Yes, uh, and like like we mentioned with the the bomb, this is often a suffix to something else. You know, as he said, Tau Mac or Eldar Mac, or even more specific versions of that, like a mechanized flying list or something like that. Yep. Something those something those lists typically need. Yes. And are lacking are bubble wrap screens and or chaff. Ooh, yes, that's a good one. Um, and those are technically all a little bit different uh you want to talk about that a little bit yeah they're they're all a little bit different so as far as as far as like screens and chaff goes your your screen um or your units that kind of are your frontline units the first that either are either screening out or sorry i use the jargon <laughs> <laughs> it's hard what they're usually doing is you're trying to prevent um uh deep strikes or that nine inch uh you that nine inch bubble mm-hmm. you're trying to stretch out push that off the board edge make it so people can't deep strike behind you um and you're also putting out in front of you to screen out that deep strike from be coming in uh from the front of you yeah close to any of your valuable units and also you're you're using that to also affect units that move very fast up the board uh that term's called move blocking mm-hmm. um very you're you're doing it with a screen um, that screen is typically a chaff unit. I'm not going to take 30-point models and screen with a 30-point model. I'm going to take a three-point model. <laughs> yes. Several dozen of them and put them up in front of you to screen you out. Because um, they're at the end of the day, they're meant to die. They're meant to wrap, protect my things and be ni- and wrap them and ni- be nice little bubbles that pop. And are you know they don't really cost me anything to, to pop. You're not... Mm-hmm. That's kind of... We leads us into our next little bubble wrap. Um, and bubble wrapping also can mean toward like wrapping your characters up with non-character units, specifically in this edition, mm-hmm. because you can't shoot characters um, as long as you have stuff that's around them uh, and making it so things just don't touch them. Um, you know, putting my characters in a big group of Terminators is like, oh, you got to get the Terminators to get to these guys or uh, specifically versus assault armies, putting your, your soft, squishy, shooty things um, surrounded by your big beefy melee things mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. can also be uh, in that same sense um, wrapping around say vehicles or other things that don't want to get touched in combat by either a big tough unit or a soft squishy unit um, bubble wrap can be a little bit more flexible in terms of the sorts of units it talks about but it's more of a role than a type of unit whereas screens and chaff tend to be expendable by nature yes or overly tough for some reason or another. Yes. Uh, I mean, ideally they're both, but uh, you usually don't get both of those together. Yeah, you might get tar-pitted. Ooh, yes. I see what you did there. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, Shaylin, you want to talk a little bit about tar-pits? Yes, uh, it's the orc tactic. It's, uh, hi, we are going to keep you from moving by feeding bodies into this combat so you can't move. Yes, uh, especially expendable bodies, like chaff, perhaps, um, and usually in very large numbers to hold up 
often a good melee unit, but not automatically. It could be a mediocre unit, uh, specifically to prevent them from getting to move around or affect any of the other units you care about. Mm -hmm. As far as tar pitting goes, it can go the other way. Um, for example, with, with the orc boy, if you want to tar pit a group of orc boys from getting to your nice squishy castle, throwing a group of terminators at them mm -hmm. with their with their two up save versus a bunch of eight versus a bunch of AP zero attacks is a pretty good tactic for stopping the orcs from getting into you. Yes. Um it the real fundament of it is using melee combat to prevent the opponent from acting with one of their units. You could tar pit a vehicle, or you could tar pit those orcs, or the orcs could tar pit those terminators, since those terminators are not going to kill the orcs very fast. Um, tar pitting can work in a variety of different ways, but it really just means getting something in combat so that it can't act. Let's see. Uh, broken! Broken keeps coming up. Broken comes up uh, quite a lot in discussions, even when it necessarily maybe shouldn't. I'd like to personally define Broken as a um, army concept that is doing noticeably over 60% victory continually. Something that is extremely successful, extremely easy to use, and hard for almost anyone to counter. Yeah, I would say overpowered or overtuned uh, to the point where it is virtually impossible to defeat from a sort of statistical perspective mm -hmm. is is really where broken. And it can also be a model more specific than that. For example, you might have a broken unit, even if the army as a whole is not broken. I like to get granular with that term. Okay, go ahead. It's not usually the entire thing that's broken. Um, for With particular metas or... Um, as their meta shifts, there's usually one or two things that make that unit or army broken. Mm -hmm. um, they, like, you know, putting a three up invuln save on a 28 wound uh, toughness eight model mm -hmm. might be a little bit broken. Um, In a particular meta, yeah. That's something that typically gets fixed. These are the things that are going to get nerfed. Oh, that's, oops, we didn't have that one in our list. We're going to add that one now. Um, something that's going to get fixed or adjusted aka nerfed mm -hmm. um are typically your broken things um but as i said i like to get granular with it because you can usually find what breaks something um and that's what your rules writers and your playtest teams and such are looking for is what exactly makes this broken because it's not this entire list yeah well, let's touch on that other one we mentioned just really quick, is uh, to buff or nerf. Uh, again, a term that certainly did not come from 40k at all, uh, but buff would be make something stronger, and nerf would be make something weaker. Uh, most commonly used in the sense of uh, adjusting the rules of a unit via FAQs or RADA or other things, but can also refer to actually in the game making a unit stronger or weaker. So for example, I cast a buff on my unit to give it plus one armor save, making the unit stronger. Mm -hmm. Or nerfing your opponent's unit, doom. Yes, you don't often want to nerf your own units. Not a great plan. And most of the time it doesn't legally let you do that. Yes. Another term we uh, kind of hit up there fairly quickly, but I think is worth uh, explaining a little bit, meta. This one is a little 
weirdly contentious because some people try to adhere to a very strict dictionary definition that I don't think has much use or meaning. Uh, but I've typically used it to refer to the metagame, which is to say the lists and generals and missions you are likely to face uh, in a given time period and place. Um, meta and metagame are usually specific to a particular area and to a particular time. Meta is the game in the context box you draw around it at that point. Yes, because the dictionary definition is that metagame is everything outside the game, and so the, the sort of pedants will argue that, like, well, the missions aren't outside the game, but of course, if you define it that way, then metagame is, I don't know, whether or not you punch your opponent in the face <laughs> uh, is outside the context of the game, but maybe not a very useful phrase. So that kind of brings us back into another, where does the meta matter? Well, you're going to have tournaments, and those tournaments all have names, uh, and they're all not part of the game mentioned in any rulebook. Um, we have the RTT, your GT, and a major. Um, RTT is a kind of an old term, goes back to kind of a, a a term that was before I was around called Rogue Trader Tournament. Am I correct there? A really old term. <laughs> and then GT stands for Grand Tournament, and Major is kind of self-explanatory, Major Tournament. Um, they relate to, specifically in the ITC, uh, size of tournament. So an RTT is going to be a three-round tournament with less than 28 people. Um, a GT is going to be a five-round tournament with 28 or more people. And a major tournament is going to be a five-plus-round tournament over you know two days. Uh, that is, what's the new number in majors now, Sean? I think it's, is it 70? I think it's 70. They bumped it up from where it used to be, but essentially, you know, significantly larger than a GT. And then there are what I, we like to call sometimes opens or super majors, which is noticeably over 100 people. Yeah, the, the gigantic, you know, events as sort of as exemplified by the Las Vegas Open, the Bay Area Open, the, the SoCal, SoCal Open. Open, yes. Uh, and these sort of talk about, because these tournaments will award different numbers of points, but also you can expect different levels of competition and play at these sort of events. An RTT is obviously going to have, draw a lot less attention, and probably get a, a an overall not as competitive crowd of players than a GT. Yes. RTTs are where you learn and experiment, GTs are where you practice and tune, and majors are where you do your hard work. Yes. Uh, I will travel for a GT, and GTs, GTs aren't just practice. They're definitely very good for your points. So I, I look at hours of uh, hours of travel for my RTTs, GTs, and majors. So RTT, uh, I'll travel like maybe two hours, maybe. Uh, <laughs> GT, I will probably travel up to eight hours for a good GT. Mm -hmm. And a major, I'll fly across the country for. So, Yep, and often do, as it turns out. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I think that basically covers all of the major terms. I mean, obviously there are a million more terms that are people are going to ask about or not recognize and whatnot, but this sort of hits a lot of the big ones that define the game, I feel. So, I think we will wrap it there. If any of you have terms that you're really curious about and you think that we forgot and are super important and that you don't understand in the slightest, by all means, feel free to send us an email or drop a word onto our Facebook. Uh, we are in the finest hour at gmail.com as well as in the finest hour at 
Facebook. Uh, and if you think we did a great job or you want to get into a little bit deeper conversation or maybe just have a bunch of 40K nerds to hang out with, then you can subscribe to our Patreon, also in the finest hour. And for five bucks a month, you get access to some of the preview episodes that we put up occasionally, as well as our Discord server and private Facebook group where you can chat with us any hour of the day or night. And that is especially true because many of us are up at strange hours of the day and nights. Weird. I would like to thank all of our Patreons who've made this possible and for who were very patient with us when we were resolving some issues with getting episodes up and running again. They've been a, a huge help to us and very supportive. And I'd also like to thank Dankmuse, who has contributed their brand new super fancy episode music. And he can be found on either Spotify, YouTube, or SoundCloud. I'd like to thank Rylan Woodrow for doing our awesome iconography and art and mm -hmm. Twitch room banner art. Yeah, that's looking pretty fancy. Oh, yeah. Steffi Sherman for doing our t-shirts. Mm -hmm. And if and if anyone would like to take the opportunity to advertise with us or bring something upon their podcast to talk about, feel free to contact us at inthefinesthour at gmail.com. All right. Well, I think that wraps us up for the week. Uh, if you'd like to join us next week, we'll be talking about things that bad, quote, uh, players say. Or unrealized potential that you are giving yourself. Oh, sure. You take the optimistic view of this whole thing. Someone has to be the good person here. Oh, yeah. That is designated to be you, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, for In the Finest Hour, I've been Sean Morgan. Shailen Allen. Ben Jurek. Thanks for listening. <laughs>